this morning we give you praise. We recognize this morning as we, we have sung here today uh, uh, about you being the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Not just ours, but for the sin of the entire world for all time. And Jesus, you did not just lay down your life, but you defeated our greatest enemy. You are the lion as well that roars on our behalf. And so Jesus, this morning we ask that you would receive all of the glory and honor and praise because you are the one who is worthy of it. God, we pray that in these next couple of moments that you would take your word, that you take the things that I'm about to say and that they wouldn't just be my words, but that you would speak directly into the hearts of each and every person here today and that we would not leave the same way that we came in here, that we would leave changed because we have met with you. We love you and we give you praise and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Something is coming. Can you feel it? I know you can. That we are creeping towards the edge and there will be a reckoning. People say that I'm crazy, but when you wake up in the morning, you look at the same news as I do, and do your, not, do your eyes not fill with horror? This is the world, this world? This is the world that we've built for our children? Communities being torn apart, walls erected because leaders are too impotent to act, bullies too addled to lead righteously. You see, everything is coming to an end, you can feel it. I know you can. And with those words, he pointed directly to me in the crowd. His name was Joseph Seed, or at least that was the character that actor Greg Brick was portraying as he delivered a doomsday stump sermon on the back of a wagon in Central California. And while this was an act all to promote a video game, I had a chance to talk with Greg afterwards and shared with him that I was a pastor and that his words, well scripted, were eerily revelatory. As I watched the, the crowd around, you could see that there was a general sense that his words resonated. Even though these were words that were written for him, they resonated with the people that surrounded him. They're a re very real perspective of very real people, friends, neighbors, family that you and I have to today. They're words of fear. And you don't have to go far to hear these whispers of uncertainty. We have seen visceral reactions of panic on display for all of the world to see. We live in a world that is filled with fear. But this isn't a new world. See, Jesus, in a gathering with his disciples, was very frank about the, the world as they knew it. And he's, when he said in John 16, in this world, you will have 
trouble. You will experience trouble. You will experience discord. You will have moments where you are afraid. And yet he doesn't stop there. We are for now. And we'll come back to this. Because in a conversation about fear, we have to stare down our greatest fears, identify them. And to do that, we're going to look at some pieces of Scripture that will help us frame in the conversation about fear. And we'll take a look at the life of a man who responded to those fears and how they changed everything in his life. We're going to start here with, uh, with point number one, which is, what, which is asking the question of what are, we so, what are we so afraid of? I think this is a legitimate question, isn't it? I think that when we have, when we have reactions and when we, ha- when we have responses to things, that it's really important for us to dig down to the root of why do I feel the thing that I feel and, and, and why, does, why does it make me feel what it does? I have a friend who's a, who's a counselor and, uh, and several years ago, I, I reached out to him. There was a, a particularly traumatic moment that I was walking through. And, uh, and, and, I, and I sat down with, with my friend Robert and asked him, you know, Rob, would you, would you give me, like, if, what is the best tool as a counselor that you can tell me? He's like, well, it's like exactly what I just said before, that one of the things that you need to do when you're, when you're feeling something that kind of grates against you, you need to ask the question of why does this make me feel the way that it does? And what do I do with this now that I know where this comes from and, and what to do? So, so it's, it's important for us in this conversation to, to frame in what are, we afraid, what are we the most afraid of? Well, there was a study that was done out of Chapman University in, in California that was a, a multi-year study on, uh, on, on the, the nation to, to ask the question of what are Americans the most afraid of? And, and some of the points that I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you here come out of that study. There's some really interesting things that they discovered. Uh, point A, one of the top, uh, one of the top fears uh, that, that people have in the United States is corruption. People are afraid that there's corruption at all levels, whether it's uh, major authority figures from top government officials down to uh, local municipalities to, uh, to corruption in tech companies. We just saw a couple of, uh, of months ago uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, the, the going before this, uh, this federal council uh, to, to talk about the, uh, the, uh, the nature of Facebook and, and, uh, and some, of the, uh, some of the security issues with Facebook. I, I always find it kind of interesting when, uh, when looking in, in a room like that, uh, hearing questions like, what is a Facebook? Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, that would have been like, a, okay, we take this book and do something like that. But anyway, sometimes I'd like to do that when I log in, but uh, that's, a, that's a whole other topic for another day. Uh, letter B, uh, one of the major fears of, of, of the American people is, is extremism. We're afraid of extremism on all sides, whether it's, whether it's groups like ISIS or, or MS-13 or white supremacists or Antifa. We're all, there's, there's a sense that, that we, f- we have this, this general sense of dread for, uh, for extremism. And so, so it, it's kind of one of these things where, and, and I think that as as a pastor, I've seen this in the church too, where like we're so afraid to step outside of, of a little box of, of who we are as a church that we just, we just don't do anything. We're afraid of extremism. This one is really interesting. One of the major fears, 
One of the major fears of the American people is the supernatural. We have a fixation on the supernatural. If you look at, at some of, our, uh, at some of our, uh, our entertainment in the last uh, decade or two, there's a lot of zombie movies, a lot of, uh, a lot of paranormal things. Uh, you know, uh, we, have, we actually have like books for surviving the zombie apocalypse, you know, the survival guide for how to, how to survive. So we, we have this, uh, and, and while some of it is kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, there is, there is a fixation on, on what is the unseen, there's, there has to be more than, than, what I can, than what I can see and touch and feel and sense. There's, there's something more. Letter D uh, is, is disaster or tragedy. There is a very real fear of the loss of loved ones or lifestyle or, or property. And, and a lot of these things can, and, and some of these fears and disaster can really fall into two categories. We can have environmental disasters, things like, you know, the, like, uh, you know there's fears of global warming or fears of, of, clean, of whether or not we're, we're going to have clean water or, or fears of, uh, of natural disaster. But then there's also, there's also financial disaster, financial tragedy. We're worried about, you know, what happens if I don't have enough money in the bank or what happens when that major bill comes along and I can't pay that bill. A lot of Americans ride this line of feeling like they're one disaster. They're one disaster away from personal collapse. There's a fear of failure. There's a fear of what if I'm not good enough? There's also letter F, the fear of the unknown. It's the land of the what-ifs. What if she gets sick? What if he gets into an accident? What if the job isn't there tomorrow? And while this list is not exhaustive, some people are also afraid of, of things like, like public speaking or heights or spiders or that somewhere in the world that a duck is watching you and the fear that their children will hear the word Yanni when they hear Laurel. Uh, if you're not familiar with that one, uh, talk to me afterwards. I'll explain everything. But fear, fear can drive us. Fear is infectious. Fear fuels frothing acidic outrage. Fear sells headlines and insurance policies. Fear drives political agendas. Fear pushes people into the realms of what, the what-ifs. Fear gets clicks. And if we're surrounded by fear in our world, what do we do with that fear? Let's jump into point number two here, framing in fear. You see, after we identify our, our fears, we have to put those fears into perspective. And let's be honest, some fear is actually healthy. Fear can be a natural response to overwhelming power. It helps us to put our position to that power into perspective. Fear can lead to healthy reverence and respect. For example, I really like fire, and sometimes I play with fire. And at some point in my life, I learned that fire is very, very hot. And you shouldn't stand in the fire. This has actually been a, a point that served me well in my video gaming career, but that's another story for another time. 
But on the other side of this conversation about fear, we have to honestly evaluate whether or not what we're experiencing, experiencing is genuinely grounded in reality fear or if it's hysteria. Do our fears actually pose an imminent or immediately th immediate threat to us or are we projecting into the land of the what ifs? If so, we need to frame in this conversation as we figure out how to handle our fear. And we do that by starting with letter A, don't fall for clickbait. This is where we get into the realm of differentiating uh, uh, from fear from hysteria. We're bombarded, and let's be honest, we're bombarded with apocalyptic headlines. Um, you know, doomsday, the doomsday clock is moving one click closer to midnight. Foreign countries with nuclear capabilities, rigged elections, threats to civil, civil liberties, and the list goes on. But Isaiah in the Old Testament shares a word from the Lord that I think that we need to heed when we approach the conversation of fear. And this is found in Isaiah 8, 12. It says this, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. I don't know that there is a more prophetic word for our time than this. It's easy to get stuck, sucked into conspiracies and controversies and you don't have to go far to find them. Isaiah was instructing Israel during a time of war, but this advice would be reiterated by the Apostle Paul as he would, uh, he would write to a young man named Timothy in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. And he would say, uh, he would say this. He would say, oh, as I lose my place in my own Bible, that's always a great place to start, isn't it? <laughs> He would say this, he, say, he would say, do not have anything to do, to do with foolish and stupid arguments. That seems pretty straightforward. Because you know that they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, we, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. I want to be very, very clear. Uh, there's a very, very big difference between awareness of what's going on in our world and standing up for what is true and godly and righteous and perpetuating fear-mongering within our culture. And I would urge you, as you consider the, your fears that you have, I would urge you to be prayerfully wise as you consider how you respond to those, those in the face of controversy. Because remember, you represent Jesus who brings hope into darkness. And there are moments where we must give a clear and prophetic warning. But how and where matters. And this will require us to let her be, readjust your autofocus. See, fear is kind of like the kid in the room going, look at me, look at me, look at me, I want your attention, look at me. It steals our attention, distracts us. But in Christ, we have hope that, we can, that he can refocus us and bring peace in the moments of our greatest fears. After all, one of the names, one of the names that he's called by in the New Testament is the Prince of Peace. The Apostle Paul also writes in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 
chapter four, verse, uh, verse seven through 10, he says this, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not destroyed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our bodies. When dealing with fear, it's so vital for us to remember that we are not walking on this earth alone. Not only has God established the church, a community of believers and a network for encouragement, admonishment, correction, etc., He's also placed his Holy Spirit in us. So Paul's words about us being pressed and not crushed, struck down and not destroyed mean that, that we can stand up underneath our fear because we're not standing in it alone. We're not walking through it alone. Come on, what do we have to be afraid of if God is walking with us through those things? Can a corrupt structure rob you of him? Can any extremist snuff him out? Is he not greater than our failures? Is he not the greatest supernatural force that we have yet to begun to fully understand? And don't for a second think that I'm belittling our fears of provision, of our basic needs, because God is aware of those too. This, uh, this year, Bailey and I had the privilege of, of hosting a connect group in our home and, and, uh, and it's, it's, been, it's been awesome to, it was awesome to be able to make some of those, those connections and build relationships on that level with, a group of, with another group of people. And I would encourage you this fall as we gear up for this again, I'd really challenge you to, to get involved in, in one. But, uh, but we had, uh, throughout the, the course of our, our time in connect groups, we had some situations where there were people who had lost jobs and there were, there were fears of, of provision. There were fears of the, you know, what's going to happen next? Is God going to provide for my basic needs? And time and time and time and time and time again, guys, I've seen where God has provided just in time for basic needs. I know I've been the recipient of that too. You see, fear would have us fix our eyes on it. Fear would have us be distracted. Fear would have us, us, us pour all of our energy into, into the what-ifs. But the author of Hebrews would challenge us this way by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, talking about those who've gone before us in the faith, let us throw off all that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such oppression or opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's a really interesting picture if you read through the Gospels of Jesus preparing to go to the cross. And in that moment, there's this, there's this moment in prayer 
where Jesus is petitioning God the Father and saying, if there's any other way, but if there's not, your will be done. And there's this moment we see where there's a, there's a fear, but a confidence in the midst of that fear. There was a confidence that in that moment that while Jesus knew that he was heading towards the cross, he knew what he was about to endure, there was a confidence knowing that God would be with him in the midst of that. Jesus would also remind us in Matthew 6 that God cares for our needs and he says, do not worry. Do not worry about today, what you'll eat or what you'll drink. He says, your God wants to care for you like a loving father. In the face of fear, our focus needs to be fixed on him. But that requires letter C, calibrating wisdom. You see, this is where the conversation turns back to fear where, where we originally began in framing fear out. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this collective understanding that when a person begins to fear the Lord, that this is where wisdom begins. Remember the thing that I said about fire? You know, fire is hot, very, very hot. Don't stand in the fire. But fire is also good. It would be an understatement to suggest that God is far more powerful, awe-inspiring, and dangerous than we could ever fully comprehend C.S. Lewis would portray Jesus as the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. And when asking about his nature, the Pevensey children asked if he was safe. And the response that Lewis wrote was profound when he said, safe, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. You see, God is ridiculously powerful. But he is also for you. Our understanding of fear and the wisdom that we approach it with begins with the perspective of knowing exactly who it is that we cling to in the midst of trouble. You see, when Jesus promises to give rest to those who are weary and heavy burdened, and we, when he teaches about worry, he admonishes us not to, reminding us that we have a heavenly Father that cares for our needs and that he will be with you in the midst of your greatest trouble and in the midst of your greatest fears. When you invite him into it. There are stories throughout scripture that encapsulate this, this idea. And I'm sure there are some that, that probably encapsulate it better I mean, Hebrews 11 is, is filled with examples. But I want to share a story with you of someone who gave their fears to Jesus and didn't always succeed at fixing their eyes on him. But when he allowed Jesus to champion his fears for him, everything changed. He's a man named Simon Peter. And I think if I, and I've thought about this a lot, if I were ever to write 
about the life of Simon Peter, I would probably call it the crucible. A crucible is a vessel in which, uh, which, in which uh, raw ore is put into, and that vessel is put deep into a forge. And, and in, that, in that crucible, the, the heat and the pressure push out every impurity in the raw ore. And, and in, that, in, the, in those moments, this is when the, the raw mineral turns into precious metal. And we see this, we see this happen in the life of Simon Peter, where he comes into the story raw. He comes into the story super raw. And at the end of his life, we see a precious picture of what God has done in the face of fear. And this morning is a little bit different because typically what I like to do when, when bringing a message to you is I like to start with one scripture and, and pour out the points from that. And this has been a little bit more topical this morning, but we're gonna end on a weird note because it's me. And those of you who know me know that I, I, my opinion is that normal is the setting on a dryer and that's pretty much it. And so what I want to end here this morning with is an autobiography of Simon Peter from his perspective. You have to understand that the day that I met this man, it was, it was the worst day that I could have met him. I had been out all night in a boat with my family, plying our family trade. We're fishermen. It's what we do. It's what we've done for generations. And so like my father before me, we were there hauling in our livelihood. But tonight was a bad night. Nothing. You would say the fish weren't biting, but we couldn't even drag them in in nets. And as we approached the shore that morning, this, this man, this teacher with his crowd comes along and asks if he could use our boat. And I thought to myself, well, my boat isn't good, any good for catching fish today, so it may as well be used for teaching. And as I took Jesus out into this, this boat, this man, I started to listen to what he had to say. And I never heard any teacher talk the way this man did. It was odd. It was like he had authority. And as he was teaching, he, he looks over at my brothers and I and says, put in your nets. And I'm thinking, you're a teacher? You're not a fisherman? We've been at this all night? Nothing is gonna happen. And so I, I tried to reason with him and say, look, teacher, we've been at this all night. It's, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna happen. But because you said it, we'll do it. I thought I was just humoring him, but the next thing I, I know, we've, we haul in a catch that's so large, we have to call in other boats. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. It's like nothing my family's ever seen before, but this man, he commanded it and it happened. What do you do in a situation like that? 
I fell to his feet and said, said, look, get out of my boat. I'm not even worthy, I'm not worthy to share this boat with you. Get out of here. This is something that's different. This is something that's so much different than anything I've heard and seen before. And then he said the most unusual thing to me. He said, Simon, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now you have to understand, this opportunity to follow a rabbi is huge. My opportunity passed years ago, but here, this Jesus, this man with authority is inviting me. I'm afraid of what will happen. I'm more afraid of what will happen if I don't follow him than what will happen if I do, and I'm a little bit nervous about what's gonna happen then. And so what started in, in a boat took, you know, we had, my story actually took us to, to, to boats on several other occasions, and, and, and some, of those, some of those occasions were points where I almost died a couple of times. And there's this one time where I almost died twice. Where we're in the boat and there's wind and waves raging and, and, and we're, trying to, we're trying to control this thing and Jesus is asleep. Come on, Jesus, help us out. If we're gonna diet, let's at least all pitch in together. And one of, one of his, his followers goes and rouses him and, and, and Jesus does the, the craziest thing. He stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they listen to him. Who is this man? I'm afraid. That wasn't the only moment in a boat. There was another time where Jesus sent us ahead. He had just finished performing another miracle. He fed thousands upon thousands. And he sent us to go ahead of him. And in the middle of the night, here, here we're, we see this thing on the water. It looks like a ghost. And you know, I've, I've seen enough where this could be Jesus. Who knows? I mean, he's done all sorts of other things. And he says, and so I yell out to him and say, Jesus, if that's you, call out to me and I'll come out there on the water with you. Because I figure if Jesus can walk on the water, he can make me do it too. And he does the thing that was afraid he was going to do. He called me out there with him. All right, Peter, time to put your money where your mouth is. And so I jump out of the boat, and I'm on the water. But then the wind and the waves start crashing around, and I, I take my eyes off of him, and I start to sink, and, and, and Jesus reaches out, and he grabs me. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? I'm afraid. We see him perform miracle after miracle. We, we, hear, we see the sick healed. We see the blind receive sight. We see the thousands, the multitudes fed. We hear demons shriek as they're sent away. Who is this Jesus? And one day this Jesus gives us a choice. He says, after a particularly tough teaching, when others start to fall away, he says, what about you? 
will you leave too? Where will we go, Jesus? Only you have words of eternal life. I was afraid that I had seen too much to go back to the boat and the fish. And I was afraid in this moment that Jesus would send us away, but he didn't. You see, he asked us this, he asked us this question, trying to dig to the heart of where we were at. If we truly were fixated, if, if, our, if our confidence was truly placed in him. And this wouldn't be the last time that Jesus would ask a hard question. He would ask, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Well, I've seen enough and I've heard enough to know that this Jesus, he's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's, the, he's God's deliverer that he sent to us. And Jesus said, Peter, you rock. And then he tells us about the cross. He tells us what's going to happen next. And, I'm, and I think, no, we ju we're just getting started. We're just getting started with this. And he rebukes me and says, get behind me, Satan. Get away from me, accuser. You don't have in mind the things of God. I mean, I thought I did. Well, maybe I did. Then there was the question that I'd like to forget. You see, everything that Jesus said came to pass. Everything that Jesus said came to pass and there was a moment while he was on trial, falsely accused, that someone noticed me and said, aren't you, aren't you one of his followers? No, that's not me. You must be thinking of another guy. And then again, another, another, no, you, I've seen you with him. No, no, it's not me. And then still another, no, I know, I know who you are. I've seen you with Jesus. No, no, it's not me. I've never seen this man in my entire life. And in that moment, he looks at me and I'm afraid because I've just sold out the one that I called the Son of God. And he's led to the cross and crucified. And three days later, I get the most wonderful and terrifying news. Death didn't stick. Jesus is alive. And in that moment, I knew that I would have to face him again. He knew that I betrayed him. And when that moment came, he asked me one question. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Jesus, of course I love you. Feed my sheep. Hey, hey, Peter. Yes, yes, Jesus. What, what is it? Do you, do you love me? Well, well, of course, Jesus. Yeah, I, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Hey, hey, Peter. Jesus, don't ask that again. Do you love me? <laughs> Jesus, of course I love you. Don't you know how messed up I am over all this that just happened? He said, oh, Peter, 
feed my sheep and it clicked like that what Jesus was asking me to do was to be a part of caring for, to be a part of, of walking alongside of him to care for the thing that he was doing the thing that he was building to care for people that were like me there were nobodies that fell at the feet of Jesus and he made me new And at the end of Peter's life, church history tells us that he was crucified upside down because he didn't believe that being crucified in the same manner as his Lord was, was was just. And in that moment, and in that moment as he is being crucified, he looks to his wife and says, remember Jesus. Remember the Jesus that rebuked the winds and the waves. Remember Jesus that defeated death. Remember the Jesus who who you knew, who who can raise the dead, whose voice heals, who who is is more powerful, has more authority than anyone has ever had. This Jesus, remember him in your moments of fear. What Simon Peter learned and that you and I can as well, is that something is coming. It did once. Jesus told it would. He said, a time is coming, in fact, when, when, uh, and, and has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, the victor in the midst of fear, will not only return, he is walking through it with you today. In the midst of our greatest fears, God has overcome the world. Something is coming, but what is there to fear? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you conquer our fears, that you are bigger than them, and that you care about them too. God, we thank you that you are are not distant and that you are not unconcerned. But God, we ask that uh, that in these moments when, when we do experience uncertainty that you would remind us that the wind and the waves still know your name that you would remind us not to be swept up in controversies not to be swept up in fear and conspiracy but to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter the pioneer of our faith God we love you and it's in Jesus name we pray Thanks. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless.